Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that amazing intro. You can find him at Ken Quiethawk, not at NativeStorytellers.com. He and his wife have an amazing website. Please check it out. It really is quite phenomenal. Mark has tonight reached into his bag of new, unusual, and and wonderfully enlightening topics and brought forward a topic we haven't covered before. So I'm very excited to see. Um, how he has he has researched and woven his way around all of this material. It's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, actually, and so I'm I'm very excited to see how Mark does with with all this material. Mark, I'm so glad you're here tonight. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to this. I, you know, I'm I'm glad I'm here too. Uh, getting the week uh, started off really well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and um, you know, uh, we are at a point in the, I think we're over nine months now, this uh, Nightlight Part 2. And yes, we are. Yeah, that was some uh, bad news to impart. Uh, I didn't get fired again. And uh, we aren't going to be. Are you trying di- discuss- to? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, okay. No. I, yeah. No. This. Uh, this is. Uh, my. Uh, uh, jo- job. Career mission at the moment. Uh, and you know we aren't going to be discussing Houdini. Okay. Uh, okay. This is. It's more like a way of life, I think. I think so. Um, but <laughs> but it, yeah, we have. Uh, uh, yeah, we're going to hear some devastating news about not eating ice cream and bacon, and definitely oh, no. not bacon ice cream. Uh, I know. It's it's going to be tough on loyal listeners like. 
Brenda and her cousin Mandy and my human billboard friend and Miss Woo Woo. But uh, our special guest is going to have alternatives like smoothies uh, that we'll, you know, we'll talk about later in the show. Yeah, um, um, health care affects all of us at some point. It's a major political issue. Should America go with a uh, you know, single-payer system like most of the Western world? Uh, we've given the competition, you know, idea of the competition uh, a chance, but prices keep skyrocketing. Yeah, we covered that uh, just uh, about three weeks ago. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, most of our listeners move into you know, the summer and there'll be the bee stings, but have you stocked up on these $600 EpiPens? Uh, what about all the expensive medications that have marginal effectiveness? Uh, what about uh, all the prescriptions that the doctors wrote that you know, got uh, people hooked on the opioids? So if you know, you're part of the growing number of people who have become disillusioned with some aspects of health care, uh, maybe tonight's show will give you some new perspectives on other treatments and cures. Uh, Dr. Marianne Teitelbaum has been in a private chiropractic uh, practice for 30 years, and she just recently published her book, Are You Veda Healing the Thyroid? And you can find her book at innertraditions.com, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or, uh, all, all kinds of other uh, respectable book stores. So um, I just want to welcome our special guest, Dr. Marianne Teitelbaum. Thank you for having uh, me. Oh, yeah, we're, we are uh, really looking forward to this. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of medical shows, so uh, but we we really do want to bring a lot of diversity to our listeners. And I think you have a very interesting book that um, I thought was very enlightening. Um, I think it's something that needs to be discussed. And I, 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 I just really enjoyed it. I, 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 as we go through the show, you know, there there are a lot of uh, topics. I think that our our listen uh, our listeners might find uh, to maybe, maybe they're ha- yeah having a problem with it, and you know, they might you know want to call in or. You know, Join the chat room with a, a question. Ho- hopefully, we can find something to uh, ha- help them with an alternative treatment. So I, 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 I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So, 
the what is Ayurveda? Well, I mean, Ayurveda, it's, it's a 5,000-year-old tradition of holistic medicine mm-hmm. that comes from India. Okay. See, in America, we're a fairly new country, and we don't really have an established tradition of holistic mm-hmm. medicine. So whenever people decide to seek out alternative medicine, uh, we technically don't have any. And so a lot of the alternative practitioners are resorting to the use of synthetic nutraceuticals like B-complex, vitamin C, and so on. And those are kind of like the toxic version of the real thing found in food. And just like their pharmaceutical cousins, um, they're toxic to the liver and kidneys and have side effects. So this is truly the first book that describes just natural remedies outside of Mm -hmm. the nutraceuticals. Natural means it grew in nature. So this book's using herbs, food, and spices for healing, and and none of those nutraceuticals. Okay. Okay, you've been in practice for uh, 30 years. you know, I, I, you know, well, you know, we'll get get into talk, talking about uh, how long you've been uh, working with Ayurveda, but I, I'm sh- sure that I'm not the only one in the audience who is just learning of this practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how? Is it doing, uh, you know, emerging onto the scene here in America? Well, um, what I say is that this book is um, showing two megatrends. One trend is that there's this huge epidemic of thyroid problems. So this book's addressing that. The other Mm -hmm. trend is that people are very um, hungry for the knowledge of Ayurveda. There's a keen interest, an intense interest in Ayurveda, but really not only in America, but around the world. It's it's very big in America right now and growing very rapidly because we don't okay. have an established tradition of holistic medicine. So people are looking at this as something that they could finally use that's, again, using herbs. See, we probably have about 700 herbs. Uh, that's what they have in Ayurveda. But we we haven't discovered them yet, so they're they're lying out there in the fields waiting to be discovered. But we don't have a whole pharmacopoeia of herbs to use, so we don't have pharmacies where you can go and you know buy different herbs for your different ailments. We've only examined the pharmaceuticals over the past hundred or so years, and now we're looking at these nutraceuticals and we're seeing they're not so great either. So we need a way out. And Ayurveda is the most ancient of the traditional healing systems. The Chinese came about 2,000 years later because, again, Ayurveda is 5,000 years old. The Chinese came and took their information from the Ayurvedic tradition a couple thousand years later. So these are the truly um, holistic and traditional methods of healing right now that are just using herbs and things that are grown in nature, the Chinese system and the Ayurvedic system. I always like to go back to the fountainhead and see what the original people had to say. So I studied Ayurveda. Uh-huh. So that's you know that's what I'm doing. And within the Ayurvedic tradition, the doctors are trained 
and very advanced pulse diagnosis. In my book, I describe exactly what it is when we feel the pulse, and this is how we can determine what we need to do in each person. It's not the way we feel pulse. Here in America, we feel the rate and the rhythm, like is the heart beating regularly Mm -hmm. and how many times a minute. That's all we know how to feel in the pulse. But in my book, I have page after page of all the things we can feel. Um, And so in the pulse, you can feel all the organs and glands and the four types of toxins, the seven types of tissues, where those toxins went. For instance, if someone's getting, say, too many flu shots, and they used to have mercury in the flu shots, they're just now starting to take it out. But for those many years, you could feel the mercury in someone's pulse, and you could see exactly where it went. So it's a very specific system of pulse diagnosis uh, where we can pick up different imbalances in each person and work on reversing them. So it's really um, a wonderful method of treating patients. Yeah, that was something, a topic I found really interesting. And I don't know know, what you mean is put your – you know, left arm on the table and, you know, doing the blood pressure thing and, you know, the nurse puts her finger or her thumb on your, uh, like, wrist area, feels your pulse, and that really is about it. And it's – but, you know, what's the the training you have, uh, you know, where you're talking about, you know, know, the the different – other uh, 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 how all the other organs are functioning through through that touch. Uh, you know, I thought that was really a fascinating subject. It's a real important thing because um, the ancient doctor said that the body breaks down in stages. It doesn't. You don't go from being healthy to having a disease like lupus or thyroid disease overnight. And they described these different stages of imbalances that we go through. In the first two stages, things could be going out of balance, but you won't notice any symptoms yet. But by the third and fourth stage, if you allow these imbalances to continue, you'll have different symptoms, but you can't name it yet as a disease. By the fifth and sixth stage, now you could start naming it diabetes, ulcerative colitis. So... The goal of medicine should be to see where you are along that path, be able to detect imbalances, and then reverse them so that you never make your way to the fifth and sixth stage. In other words, so that you don't ever Mm -hmm. become diagnosed with a disease. But doctors nowadays, mainstream doctors, are trained to diagnose and treat disease. So they kind of feel that you're either healthy or you have a disease and there's no in-between stage. So, therefore, they're not able to pick up these imbalances with their diagnostic tools, so they can't prevent disease, in other words. They kind of wait till we get the diabetes or the cancer, and then they show us how to just treat the symptoms of those diseases using their pharmaceuticals. Um, so that really isn't the way medicine should be practiced. It's just the model that we know of here in America right now, and that's mm-hmm. why people like myself are writing books to show people that there is a better way to do this. And it's really important when it comes to the thyroid gland because I would say that thyroid 
so many millions and millions of people are walking around with weakness in the thyroid, and they have all the symptoms like hair loss, weight gain, depression, constipation, fatigue, history of miscarriages, irregular menstrual cycles, and on and on. And yet when they have their blood work tested for the thyroid, it looks okay. There's no problem that shows up. But see, we could detect it many years before it would show up in the blood work. So those patients whose blood work is normal, they leave their doctor's office feeling really frustrated and hopeless because they were just told nothing's wrong with them, even though they have this litany of symptoms. So when we see them, we start treatment right away. But what we do isn't just to give herbs for the thyroid gland. We identify and see in each person what's pulling the thyroid gland down, and we fix all those reasons. And so my book has all the reasons why the thyroid might be getting weak. And then we support the thyroid using the thyroid herbs, see. So uh, there's a difference there, not just, you know, pacifying a symptom like that. Yeah, and I thought one of the refreshing uh, points of your book is, you know, you really stress the contrast of, between you know, the Western medical establishment seeing the, the body as compartmentalized and you know, the Ayurveda uh, practice sees the, the body as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's just a a big uh, just a a big difference between the two uh, views there. So you know, you're uh, when you're detecting something, just say like the third or fourth stage of uh, a thyroid uh, problem. Uh, you know, you're picking up something, and you, know, you want to move on it, uh, you know, quick, quickly. And some of the uh, Western uh, you know, doctors are, are, are saying, well, you know, there's, you know, blood test is isn't showing anything. But you know, you you, know, you really do uh, go for the underlying cause much faster. Yeah, and we treat the underlying cause. See, see, there are a group mm-hmm. of people who have those thyroid symptoms that I just mentioned, and it does show up as a problem on the blood work that the thyroid isn't working right. So the mistake the doctors make is they give the thyroid hormone, which only serves to weaken the thyroid further because now the thyroid's no longer called upon to make its hormones. So it goes into kind of like a hibernation. So it's not fixing anything. It's not fixing the reason why the thyroid's weak. And that's one of the big points of my book is that if you can see in each person, and it's usually a little different in each person, but if you could identify the particular stressors on the thyroid and fix them, and then you support the thyroid gland using herbs, early bedtime, dietary changes, 
then the thyroid gland will perk right back up. The doctors are quick mm. to assume that, oh, the thyroid's a problem. Here, you have to take medicine now. It's not true. It's just that that's all we've been taught so far. So that's why I just felt compelled to write a book, because you can fix it. Our bodies are fully capable of healing themselves. You just have to know how to do it. You have to know how to nudge them in the right direction, and they perk back up. So um, that's what we, what I t- intend to do in the book and show people all the various mm-hmm. influences on the thyroid. And that's why it's called holistic medicine. One of the things, just from treating people in a holistic way, is that when a person has a symptom, the underlying cause of the symptom is usually far removed from where that symptom is. So, for example, if someone has a rash or eczema, psoriasis, whatever it might be called on the skin, the problem isn't with the skin. It's with the liver and the blood being impure inside. It's just being reflected on the skin. So that's a good example of, oh, there's a skin condition. Oh, let's look at the liver, see. Whereas in America, the doctors are trained to look right where the symptom is. Oh, you have psoriasis or you have uh, eczema. Here's a cortisone cream to rub on the skin as if it's a skin problem. So that's an example of what holistic medicine means. We're looking at the whole body, see. We're looking at the underlying cause. And what does um, the thyroid do for the body? For you know, for all those who aren't you know, like me, who aren't um, you know, medical experts, um, you know, what does the thyroid do? And you, know, you do emphasize that it really does play a major role in our health. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's the only gland in the body who has an influence on every single cell in the body. And that's why the thyroid gets weak in reverse. Any stressor anywhere, uh, if it's in the gut, the liver, anywhere, um, will weaken the thyroid. But the thyroid is responsible especially for metabolism, um, and it, uh, like so if it gets weak, you could gain weight easily because you're not burning up your food as quickly, see. So, and then once the thyroid gets weak, a lot of things will start to go downhill. Uh, it's kind of like a domino effect. So uh, the thyroid helps to keep us warm, so you could have cold hands and feet, see, or... Um, when the thyroid gets weak, I have a whole chapter on this. The gallbladder won't empty well. So I noticed with all the thyroid patients I was treating through the years that whenever the thyroid was weak, automatically the gallbladder wasn't working well. Now, when you eat food, the gallbladder squirts bile, and the bile does a lot of things. One thing is that The foods that you're eating, if there's any fat in there, like olive oil or butter, they're big globules, and they can't just absorb in your cells and used to be burnt for energy. So your gallbladder squirts bile, and within the bile are two detergents that emulsify those fats so that they can break down into very small particles and absorb in your cells. Because the food that you're eating can't help you unless it breaks down into very small particles 
and crosses a very delicate little cell wall. Then once it's inside the cell, then the body will use it. See, and so it can't use it unless it gets in the cell. So as far as fats go, it's the job of the gallbladder to help the body to metabolize and assimilate and absorb these large fat globules. So if the gallbladder's just sitting there and the bile's not squirting because the thyroid's weak, your cholesterol could go up. So in America, the doctors, when they see cholesterol go up, they give statin drugs, which lower cholesterol. So then people decide that, oh, there's too many side effects. They hear that the statin drugs can give you dementia or problems with your muscles walking or neuropathy because they burn the nerve tissue. So so a lot of people are saying, well, let's go to alternative doctors and let's see what they use to lower cholesterol. And they'll use things like red yeast rice, niacin, and fish oil. But when people come to me, I tell them, we're not going to do either approach. Our goal isn't to lower cholesterol, but to fix the reason why it's high in the first place. So that's what I mean. We're not used to, as a country, fixing the reason why things aren't working right. But And that's what I'm trying to teach people that we have to do. So if the cholesterol is going up, you have to look at the liver and the gallbladder. You don't just try to bring it down, even with the herbs that could do that. You want to fix the, the liver or the gallbladder, and in some people it's both. So in the case of the thyroid, when it's weak, the gallbladder can't function properly. So the bile, it's just sitting there, and it doesn't squirt out. In my book, I'll talk about the reasons why the bile won't squirt, but it's kind of like when the thyroid gets tired, then the gallbladder becomes lazy. So this bile, which should be like a liquid, becomes very thick, like a sludge. And the same thing, if you let it sit for too many years, that sludge could turn into gallstones, and then you go through those six stages of a disease process, and you wind up with gallbladder disease. So in America, doctors just let you go through the stages, and then when you have gallbladder disease, they remove the gallbladder. But in the early years, there was so much that could have been done to thin out the bile. My whole chapter will talk about the herbs, the foods, mm-hmm. teas, so many things that could keep that bile thin so that you can uh, you know, move the bile and squirt it out when you're eating food. Now, the other thing the bile does is it clears out the estrogen out of your body. See, estrogen makes things grow. It's a hormone that women make, their ovaries make, and it makes the breasts grow, the hips grow, and also the lining of the endometrium, which is the uterine lining. It builds up. So if the woman's not pregnant, she sheds that every month in her menstrual cycle. So while we want some growth of the uterine lining or some growth in the body of the hips and the breasts, we don't want too much growth. So the body's very smart. It breaks the estrogen down, which, by the way, is made of cholesterol. So, again, it's going to be processed through the bile. So the liver breaks it down, dumps it in the bile for removal out of the body. But when the thyroid's weak, the gallbladder won't empty the bile again, and the estrogen sits there and it reabsorbs back into the physiology, back into the bloodstream. So then what happens, you wind up with a situation of high estrogen and low progesterone, which could cause too much growth, like fibroid tumors in the uterus or cysts in the breast or the ovaries. 
uh, or breast cancer, or too much heavy menstrual bleeding, a menstrual cycle that won't go away. It's 8, 9, 10 days, sometimes 30 days long, or just too much bleeding during the period. So the mistake doctors make when they see heavy menstrual bleeding, they put women on the birth control pill, which has lots of very serious side effects, but it's not fixing anything. It looks like the bleeding's getting better because now they have like a normal flow, but it's just breakthrough bleeding that happens when you stop the pill for a week. So in the book I give a recipe if there's too much menstrual flow um, of some herbs that can recalibrate the ratio between estrogen and progesterone so you're not bleeding so much or making cysts on the breast and ovaries or fibroid tumors. But we also want to keep the bile flowing. And, again, I'll show you different ways to do that. But also we have to fix the reason why the thyroid's weak. See, So you have to keep going back and back and making sure you get to the root of the problem. The other uh-huh. thing that can happen if the gallbladder is not working, you can have constipation because the bile gives you the urge to move the bowel, see, and it propels the food through the intestines. So if the bile's not flowing, the food sits there, you lose the urge to move your bowels, or you might feel like you move a little bit and, you you know, you can't move more, and then you have to keep going several times in a day to just try to get out a normal bowel movement, whereas if the bile were flowing properly, you would really empty out in just maybe one or two sittings. So in America, if someone's constipated, they give them a medication um, to help them move their bowels but they're missing the fact that the bile's not flowing. And the final thing that can happen if the bile doesn't flow is that um, you could wind up with like an acid reflux. They call it GERD. um, Uh Because when you swallow the food, first it goes into the stomach. There's all this acid in the stomach, churning the food, churning the food, until it becomes like a liquid acid. From the stomach, it squirts into the next, place which is called the duodenum and the duodenum is like the very beginning of the long journey the food's now going to make through the small intestine then the large intestine and then it comes back out but the duodenum is very interesting it's a very it's like a transition area where the food coming in from the stomach is acid but it has to leave alkaline or else you could burn up the um, digestive tract So if the bile's not flowing, you'll wind up with too much acid because once these acids come out of the stomach into the duodenum, a signal sent to the gallbladder to release the bile. And the bile has an alkalinizing effect on the acidic digestive juices coming from the stomach. So the food coming in from into the duodenum is acid, but it leaves alkaline so it doesn't burn up the gut. Plus, Again, the bile propels the food downward, so it moves down until eventually comes out the other end. And it creates um, like muscular movement in the intestines. So if the bile's not flowing, you could develop something called gastroparesis. It's where you're eating the food, but it just sits there. It's not propelling through the digestive tract. Or even worse, the food could move up. And because it's acidic now and it wasn't neutralized by the bile, you can create like an acid reflux situation. So the mistake doctors make when you have acid refluxing up, they give medications to lower, to take away the stomach acid, 
but they've totally missed the point that the bile's not flowing. See what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. now you can wind up with a bad situation because now you have no acid in the stomach and no bile flow. Not only that, when we swallow the food, there's a lot of bacteria in our environment. It's all microscopic, but everything's kind of teeming with bacteria. So the food we're eating will have bacteria on it, but it's okay because when it comes into the stomach, our bodies are intelligent. They have all this acid in there to kill any infection that might be in there so that when it moves into the duodenum, which is, again, the beginning of the small intestines, all the bacteria were killed, so it's very sterile in the duodenum. So if doctors are using these things, they're called proton pump inhibitors. These are antacid medications like Prilosec, Nexium. If they're using those, now your stomach has lost a lot of its acid. When the acids, when the stomach contents flow through into the duodenum, you can get infection in there, and they call it small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and the abbreviation for that is SIBO. It used to be one of those things we never heard of, but now it's becoming more and more epidemic as more people take these antacid medications because they're getting rid of their stomach acids, and now infection can easily grow in the gut. So these were a lot of issues that I felt compelled to write about because they're being treated incorrectly um, in mainstream medicine, and so someone needed to write about that. Uh, You know, you you just mentioned, you know, know, two or three of those uh, antacid pills just, you know, that I'm sure most of the listeners uh, have seen the commercials for them. So, you know, I really like your approach where, you know, you're going back to what's really the, the cause of, you know, just say the uh, acid in the stomach. And, you know, you're taking an approach where, you know, uh, it's more like, you know, pulling back the uh, onion, you know, find, uh, you know, keep going back to, uh, you get to the core, you know, yeah, the core exactly of the, the, like. the, yeah. yeah, and, yeah, I, you know, I just think with, it's almost like the programming that we're, we're given uh, with all the commercial, you know, just bombarded with commercials, you know, okay, take, take the Prolisac. Okay, it's just like a surface treatment, but it's not looking at the real root of the problem. And that's as, you know, I went through your book, you kept going back to stressing the importance of really finding out what is really causing the problem. It's going to take a little bit more uh, effort and time to find it, but but deal with that issue instead of just uh, the, the, the concept of just take this pill to just maintain the symptoms. I've heard that a, a lot recently, but that's really not a, a effective either. It, it, it just seems like this modern approach has all kinds of 
uh, like more drawbacks than healing people. No, you can't really heal the body using petrochemicals, and that's basically what modern medicine is. You can suppress symptoms, however. I think that mm-hmm. the best use of pharmaceuticals, if you ask me, is, is used for a crisis. Let's say that you know, you're stressed, your body got too far out of balance, and now you caught a nasty infection and you have pneumonia then I would be very grateful to know that this pharmaceutical called antibiotics is there to bail me out. See what I'm saying? Uh But as far as beyond the crisis goes, from what I see with all my thousands and thousands of patients coming into my practice every day, I can't see where it's really getting to the root of problems and it's not able to prevent any chronic disease. It can suppress the symptoms of them, but it's not really treating any of them. See, this is my first book. I started with the thyroid because that's the biggest epidemic I see, and it's totally being treated incorrectly. But we could sit and talk about any other health problem, and I can show you the mistakes modern medicine is making. So my other books are going to talk about these very common diseases that we're seeing and how to treat them correctly uh, by going to the root of the problem. Um, again, we're just used to this as a culture, and when the patients come in, I tell them, no, this isn't the correct way to do it. We want to fix the reason why it's happening. For instance, with diabetes, the first thing you think of, again, is the liver, because if the blood sugar is going high, then something's compromising your liver. So we have to see what it is so the patient stops doing that, and then we support the liver so that the blood so the liver can bring the blood sugar back down. See, they're just giving medications to lower the blood sugar. So, mm-hmm. And not only that, they're not only just treating symptoms or suppressing a symptom, but they're, they're not, again, they're not looking at the underlying cause. But I think of each disease as just a symptom. So we could say, for instance, um, lupus is a symptom of something, or fibromyalgia is a symptom of other things that are out of balance, or whatever you could think of the name of it, ulcerative colitis or, or headaches. These are all just symptoms, but we just name them as diseases. But what the real truth is that we have to see the underlying you know, reason for them. So it's a habit that we have to get out of. We have to break the habit. And I'm hoping as I come out with these books, it'll help people to break that habit where we just want to just treat this thing named lupus or treat this thing named cancer, but we want to see why it it happened. Like I get so many women in who had breast cancer, and they'll say, yeah, well, that occurred so many years ago. They removed my breast. I took uh, medication for it. I did chemo, radiation. I'm on tamoxifen. Um, And then I'll say, "Well, well, why did you get breast cancer? And they'll say, well, well, oh, I don't know. So I always teach the patients to ask, why do I have this? And if you ask any doctor about any disease, they'll tell you they don't know why. But see, that's because they can't see the underlying imbalances. But we can see easily why people are getting things. And again, it's different in each person. So it's true with the thyroid, but it's true with any other disease. So if nothing else, I hope that this book teaches people that they could have a little weakness in the thyroid, even though their blood work shows that they don't, and how to keep a broader perspective on not only thyroid problems, but really any problem. 
you know, now that you just uh, brought up the sample of you know, uh, some of your patients who said they don't know why they had uh, breast cancer, and I mean the doctors don't have an explanation. Um, you, know, you know, you do focus a lot of your uh, research on you know, the, the causes and, you know, like, for, uh, you know, let's just say, say thyroid, since that's uh, what your book is uh, primarily focused on. Uh, you, know, you do discuss uh, stress and environmental toxins, and, yeah, it, that that's just a fascinating subject in itself. Uh, it, it, you know, it, uh, we can get into you know, like uh, like the gasoline-based fertilizers. Uh, you, you have all kinds of like things on, on uh, you know, statements about um, makeup. You, you get like uh, contaminated food, like you know, fish swimming in the Fukushima radiation. Uh, there's uh, uh, yeah, all all kinds of garbage in uh, the foods, like the uh, canola oil, uh, gasoline-based uh, food dyes, and things like that. We can't. We almost can't escape some some of these. Um, uh, toxins, you know, what? How how can we uh, decrease some of these toxins in our lives? Well, what I say in the book is that there are some things you can't control. See again, any anything you just mentioned will weaken the thyroid, whether it's environmental toxins, stressors. So some of these we can't control. Like if we live in a city and there's air pollution, we can't really right. control that. Um, but there are two things we can control, which gives us a little leeway. The two things we can control are our diet, what we're putting into our mouths, and our bedtime. So in the book I wrote that the ancient doctors of India said that if you go to bed past 10 o'clock at night, it weakens the thyroid gland a lot and the adrenal glands because these glands are kind of like helping you get through the day. They give you energy. But then they're like batteries that we run on. So they need some sleep. So if you allow yourself to unwind at night, you'll see that you'll fall asleep early. Just like the birds outside, you don't hear them after the sun goes down. So our bodies are the same way. We were made to be awake when the sun's up and asleep when the sun's down. But because we have artificial lighting, we can stay up if we want. We can stay up very late. So our glands and organs are hoping we go to bed early, and we'll get cues sometimes that we're tired. But it's very easy to decide that you're just going to stay up late, and you can kind of break through that initial fatigue and get a second wind, which means your adrenal glands are going into overdrive now. They're putting out more adrenaline, more cortisol, more epinephrine so that you can stay awake. And the same with the thyroid. It pumps and pumps, even though it's tired. So then you can stay up till midnight or 2 a.m., 
and you could still get eight hours of sleep, but the next day the glands are going to be exhausted. So one thing you could try to control is to go to bed early, no later than 10, and probably earlier for some people. The other is your diet. So there's a whole chapter in the book that shows what a good diet would be. And I would say most of our patients follow it about 80%. But because there's so many toxins in our environment, uh, we want to minimize the load. Our body can handle some, but when it gets to be that there's too many in the environment and the food's poor and you're going to bed late, it gets to be too many stressors on the body. And then we can start to develop these diseases we were talking about. Okay. Well, gee, uh, we might as well just uh, keep talking for 15 minutes and everyone go to bed. I know. <laughs> Skip. Well, I know. You know we have, have to make a workman's comp claim if uh, you know we have to continue uh, do, doing <laughs> our usual show from 10 to midnight. But that, 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 that's right. I'll, I'll talk to management about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, when I set up my practice, I was interning with someone who he worked until 10 at night, and I wouldn't get to bed till about 11, and I remember feeling tired all the time. So when I opened my own practice, we stopped working um, much earlier, like 6 or 7, and I felt much better doing that. So um, we, we kind of let people know. In the book, we have some, a section that talks about the different hours of the day and the best activities to be doing. When's the best time um, for, you know, uh, exercise and what's the best time to go to bed like that because that's how our bodies are made. So if you know what those natural rhythms of the body are and you follow them, then it kind of stabilizes us so that we don't go so out of balance and get sick. So there's a whole section in the book on that. Right, and... yeah, you know, it, uh, it sounds like you were you, you, you just uh, mentioned uh, Dr. Mishra. Yes, you, you're, uh-huh. and he seems like he uh, had a big influence on you and you know professional development. Uh, you know, might as well stop and just. Uh, Take a moment to uh, hear about your mentor. Yeah, so um, in India, they actually have a few hundred thousand of these Ayurvedic practitioners, but sometimes they're, some of them rise to the top. They're called the Raj Vajas, R-A-J, and the Vajja means Ayurvedic doctor from India. They have college there, just like we have medical college, and they go there. And then when they graduate, they, they become what are called vajas or doctors of Ayurveda. So my teacher's family lineage, they were always Ayurvedic doctors for 5,000 years back. And um, they were considered the Raj Vajas. That means that they were the doctors to the royalty of India for all those years. So they had this very high wow. knowledge of Ayurveda. So my teacher was sent to America to make formulations for the first Um, premier Ayurvedic herbal company about 20 years ago. And during that time, I was also one of um, the very beginning Ayurvedic practitioners in the country with one of the largest Ayurvedic practices. So the company actually sent him out 
to train me to help me get become more advanced in my practice. But at the same time, he could see what was needed in America, what our patients were coming in with, and he would make formulas for them. So as he stayed with me on and off for about those 20 years, he developed about 500 formulas for all the things we were treating, sometimes using very rare herbs to treat things like MS or fibromyalgia or autism. So um, so he had trained me, but he never trained anyone up to the level he had trained me. And I was having phenomenal success in my practice. Like right now, if you called to today to make an appointment, we have a waiting list for over two months to try to get in. We have people from all around the world and the country trying to get in to our practice because our reputation grew after he trained me and made all those formulas. So, um, so but what happened was he, a lot of the doctors said, could you train us the same way you trained her? And he said, what I'll do, I'll make a two-year course, and in the first year we'll talk about all the diseases, and in the second year, I'll teach you all the herbs. And so what happened in the middle of the course, he he ended up passing away unexpectedly. So all the doctors turned to me and said, is there a way that you could train us? And I said, the only way I can, because my practice is so busy, I can't spend time teaching, but I'll write books. So that was another reason why I wanted to write this book, so I could train even the practitioners how to treat the thyroid gland because not every single practitioner knows how to do that either. So I was very fortunate to have this opportunity. So throughout the book, I'll talk about some things my teacher taught me. Right. And since we are dealing with uh, Eastern medicinal approaches to food and herbs, you know, one may have the impression that Ayurveda requires being uh, vegan, but that's really not the case. No. In fact, Ayurveda was taught, um, and my teacher also, uh, they are strict vegetarians, and in their textbooks, the ancient doctor said you need something from an animal at every meal. So if you're a vegetarian, that would be milk and milk products. So I um, have a whole section in my book about milk and what to do if you're sensitive to it, how to fix the sensitivity, the best type of milk to get, how to take it in the correct way, and, and so on and so on. Because milk is something that we consider a poison in America because it has cholesterol, and we don't really mm-hmm. understand its importance. So I go into detail about how important milk is in the diet but also this tradition just because it comes from india doesn't mean you have to be vegetarian Um, not everyone is i would say more than half of our patients aren't vegetarian Uh, so you don't have to be Um, but there's certain meats like red meats that you would want to be avoiding so you don't clog your arteries so this book will go into detail about that but but they were very strict on that point that that you do need um, animal protein, and in fact, the thyroid hormone is made from animal protein. So I would say that's one of the underlying reasons. If a person is vegan and they're not getting any animal protein, it could potentially weaken their thyroid gland. So you have to keep in mind that a vegan diet, um, there's never been one in the history of mankind. Um, 
it, it's too depleting. At first, you might feel pretty good on it because it's a very light diet, but over time, your iron count can go low, your protein, your B12, and in the pulse, we can feel the health of the seven tissues. And in the vegans, it's very weak that there's seven tissues. There's not enough nourishment to them. So, so at least we teach them if they want to be vegetarian how to, you know, have milk correctly. And for milk, you don't have to kill the animal to get the milk. So. Yeah, and and you also do mention, uh, you know, there are other. Uh, what we call them like fad diets, like the paleo and and low carb and all, all these other. Uh, yeah, they aren't necessarily uh, uh, really good for you in the long run. Uh, like you said, it, it might help you to feel lighter at, you know, for for the first couple months, but it's really. It, like so, some of the diets really aren't uh, 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 be- beneficial over the long haul. Well, what's happened, I see it with my patients coming in. The pharmaceuticals that we're using, there's too many of them. America uses more pharmaceuticals than any country in the world. That's why we have so many commercials on TV. This is where the pharmaceutical industry knows it can you know, get most of its um, – clients from so but so these pharmaceuticals too many antibiotics birth control pills steroids these antacids um a lot of these medications are damaging our digestive tract the friendly bacteria which is the foundation of our digestion uh, the liver overheats from all the acid chemicals going through it so as a result when you start tampering with the digestive system you start to become sensitive to foods. It's not that the food is bad. It's that you're reacting to the food. So the protein and gluten and dairy are the two most difficult to digest. And unless your digestion is 100%, your body's not going to be able to digest them. In fact, you'll turn them into kind of like a poison. I'll talk about the, the Sanskrit name that the ancient doctors gave for that poison. So when you turn your food into poison, you don't feel well. So we'll we'll call that a food sensitivity or a food allergy. But when I was growing up, we didn't have so many pharmaceuticals back then, so many antibiotics. We had one or two immunizations. Now there's dozens of immunizations that the kids get. And with each round of an immunization, it's wiping out that friendly bacteria, wiping out the liver function. So so nowadays people are very sensitive to food, so then they're creating all these diets around that. You should follow this low FODMAP diet or maybe this keto diet and take out the grains or maybe go on gluten-free or avoid dairy. And so people are avoiding every food group, it seems like. Uh, this one doctor says don't have any grains. They have phytates and lectins in them. And another doctor says, well, don't have any animal influence. <clears throat> Be a vegan. Don't have any milk. Don't have grains. Don't have, the, you know, so what's happening is, People are pushing themselves into a corner because they can't digest food anymore, and they're making it out to be that the food is the problem, that this gluten is this terrible thing, and that dairy is a poison. And and tree nuts, every child's allergic to those nowadays, and they need EpiPens to get through school. Right. So, But it's not that. 
that the real issue is everyone has taken too many pharmaceuticals. We need to back off, and we need to fix everyone's digestion. So almost every new patient I see is either on a special diet or they have to avoid so many foods because they get symptoms when they eat them. But once I fix their digestion, regrow their friendly bacteria, get the bile flowing out of the gallbladder, fix the liver, then those food sensitivities go away. So in my book, then, I say once you're fixed, then in each food group there's certain foods to favor and avoid. But you don't want to give up a whole food group. So with milk, I show the best types of milk to, to take or um, the best grains to favor, the best grains to avoid, like that. So, so that's the real issue is what's happening to our digestive system, not that these foods are all really bad. And we should create diets around the fact that we can't digest things anymore. And uh, Dr. Teitelbaum, you wanted to um, uh, bring up the Sanskrit Sanskrit uh, name for poison. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sanskrit name for poison is visha. So one poison we make when our digestive system isn't working, like I just described, they call it ama visha. Ama means the food you ate now is just sitting in the channel. It's it's just clogging it, it's sitting in the digestive tract. And because your body's digestive system has been compromised, it can't break the food down, and it sits there in the digestive system. It's not absorbing in the cells, and it rots and ferments over time, and it forms this poison. There's another type of poison called garvisha. Garvisha means from the outside world, like pesticides, heavy metals, air pollution, Pharmaceuticals would be in that category. That's kind of a poison, even though it might have some influence on the body. And also nutraceuticals, these synthetic vitamins, uh, B-complex and all those things that are also made in the lab, they would be considered something foreign to the body and toxic to the liver and kidneys. So that that's the Sanskrit word. It's called visha. Okay. And, and how, what about the... Uh, people who do a lot of uh, fasting or just eating uh, one meal a day, does, is that really good uh, to have such a small um, intake of food or, you know, would you think that, uh, there should be like smaller meals uh, done throughout the day. I, I, I was just, you know, just wondering about that. Well, I used to sit while my teacher and I would see patients, and I would take the notes for the patient, depending on what my teacher was saying. And one of the notes I kept writing over and over and over and over for all those 20 years was, never skip or delay meals. And the reason is that in the body we have what's called a digestive fire. So when the food comes in, you have to actually burn it up, literally. You have to cook the food. So uh, that's up to the digestive organs to do that, the stomach, the acids, the bile, the enzymes. So the food coming in is being burnt up. See, So um, this, the stomach, the ancient doctor said, has one digestive fire, but the liver has five. 
the liver is one of the larger organs in the body, actually the second largest next to the skin. And it has five flames to burn up the food, so it's this very hot organ. So if the food's not coming in, like you skip breakfast or maybe you skip lunch or you delay lunch too long, then the liver will overheat and it keeps overheating and it's looking for food. And then they say that those digestive fires now, um, there's nothing for them to work on. So the heat from the liver spills into the whole body and it becomes a big source of inflammation, which could also start to trigger more autoimmune. So I'll talk about that issue in the book. But um, fasting isn't something I've ever taken a patient through. And even though I've been in practice for 30 years and I've seen 90,000 patient visits, it isn't something wow. I've ever done with a patient because okay. um, of that reason. You don't want to overheat the liver. Okay. And, and you know, since, since you just uh, started talking about the, you know, liver uh, overheating, uh, you know, the ancient, ancient uh, <clears throat> practitioners you know, really did place a lot of importance on the liver which uh, that that was uh, a new awakening uh for for me but uh can, can you tell us yeah, how uh the importance of the, the liver in the ayurveda techniques well, the ancient doctors considered the liver the most important organ in the body because the liver keeps the blood clean for the brain. So, the mm. you know, the brain's very important. But also, the liver has over 500 functions. And I am pretty sure, from what I see in my practice every day, that almost every disease we could trace it back to some malfunction in the liver because, again, the liver controls the blood sugar. So if your blood sugar is starting to creep up and they say you have prediabetes, that means you don't quite have it yet, but over the years the blood sugar is creeping up. Something's wrong with the liver, and we need to look at that. Or any skin condition you could think of, the liver keeps the blood clean. So the skin's an organ of elimination. It's eliminating toxins. So if the liver becomes impure, and the, then it's filtering the blood. The blood becomes impure, and then lots of toxins come through the skin. So any skin condition you could think of, from eczema to seborrhea to psoriasis to, you know, just about anything, acne, uh, it means there's something going on with the liver. The liver controls the cholesterol, like I was saying before. So if the cholesterol is going up, you have to look at the liver. All the autoimmune diseases, if the liver overheats, it pushes the immune system off balance to the point where it can attack the body. That's called autoimmune. All these food allergies we're seeing coming from the liver heating up. So we could go on and on talking about almost every disease is called, caused by malfunction in the liver. So in my book, I teach you how to take very good care of the liver. Everything we swallow goes through the liver. So we have to keep the liver functioning smoothly and happily so that it can remain intelligent and not make those mistakes where the cholesterol will go up or the blood sugar or autoimmune or something like that. It's really not hard to do, and I think that most people that I've talked to who've read the book said it was easy to understand and that it makes real good sense. 
and they were kind of surprised to see that every one of these diseases does have some root problem, and a lot of it does come from the liver. Maybe not everything, but a lot of it. So, so we need to mm-hmm. take a very good look at our liver and make sure we don't abuse it. No, oh, I, I, I agree with those reviews too. It's, you know, you just present it. Um, you know, your information and and an easy to understand way for you know, like uh, you know, just a lay person like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it, it's it, it's set up uh, very well, and you know, it's, you know, just walk you know, the, the reader through um, you know the concepts you want to develop, and you, know, you do break up the uh, you know, very informative sections with oh. Uh, like the um, sarsaparilla tea recipes for uh, some some of my friends who I, I mentioned at at the beginning. So you, know, you might want to take a second there to uh, talk talk about other things that you include besides you know just talking about the uh, sphincter of Odin and you know, the thyroid, you know, kind, of, kind of like boring topics like that. But yeah, you know, as we get into the su- summer uh, uh, season, we need to uh, have s- some exciting new recipes that y- you do introduce. And you have like uh, you know, this sarsaparilla tea and the sesame almond smoothies. So, so let's talk talk about you know where, where you got these recipes. You know uh, what they do and um, how they um, you know break up the uh, information. You know, like a little bit hard, harder core information in your book with. Uh, and these, uh, you know, probably new ideas to a, a lot of the listeners. It, 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 you know, hopefully over the summer months, you know, people will enjoy uh, some of these kind of smoothies. Yeah, I um, one of the things is that there's three basic components to our health. First thing is we need to see what's out of balance and work on fixing those things. Uh, so my book talks about things that could throw you out of balance. Uh, the second thing is the diet. We need to address that. And the third thing is we need to address cleansing. So a lot of the recipes I was giving were recipes for cleansing because, again, we don't do it where we're fasting, but we do it where we're either eating food that's detoxifying in nature or maybe making teas. So in the book I talk about the fact that there's four types of toxins that can come into the body and then the best way to remove them. The thing is, in the winter months, the channels, we call them channels in Ayurveda, uh, in the body, from the time you swallow food, it travels through the digestive tract, which is like a long channel. 
Then it's absorbed into the bloodstream, and it goes through those channels like arteries, veins, vessels. And then it becomes things like urine, sweat, tears, toxins, lymphatic fluids. They're all traveling through thousands of little microchannels before they exit the body in the bowel movement, urine, and the sweat, always through physical channels. So with all these thousands of channels, what happens in the winter months, they shrink up from the cold because cold has that tendency to shrink and contract. So a lot of toxins can't get out in the winter. That's why we don't talk in terms of a winter cleanse, but instead we talk about spring cleansing. And that's because in the spring, like right now, when the temperatures start to warm up, the channels will dilate. So there's a backlog of toxins waiting to come out. So this is the best time of year to remove toxins. And then in the fall is another good time. It's like the second best time to initiate any cleansing. So the book talks about how to cleanse. So a lot of the recipes you're talking about were about cleansing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, yeah. Like for example, with the sarsaparilla tea, you're talking about you, know, you might want to drink it uh, like five times a week for six months. Mm-hmm. You know, this process takes um, a, a while. Uh, you know, for, for the cleansing. Um, it, it's it, it's different than you know the traditional what what we're used to you know with American type of thinking is um, I want a pill and it's going to you know just take take effect immediately and yeah that that's it we're, you know, we're done with it yeah and, that's how we've been trained I know yeah and you know. It's a different, uh, you know, the Ayurveda is a different thought process, but you know, you, you, you're, you're saying it's more effective. You know, it's not the side effects. It's not, uh, you know, uh, you know, like we you know, keep, keep talking about the you know really expensive uh, medications or the epipens and things like that. It, 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 it you, know, you, you, you have nice. Uh, Flavors like sesame and oil or, or uh, almonds. Um, you know, I, I enjoy those. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so, you know, so it sounds like, but it, it just takes a little bit longer to uh, do the cleansing. Well, everybody's different. It depends on the type of toxins you've stored. One thing I wrote about in the book is that there's two types of toxins. One group are water soluble. And I think when people mm-hmm. think they take in something toxic that it just comes out the next day or maybe in a few days, and that is true with the water-soluble toxins. They'll just come out in the urine, then they're done. But then there are these fat-soluble toxins, which are the very serious chemicals like air pollution, lots of pharmaceuticals like birth control pills. These are very serious toxins that are causing a lot of breast cancer and so forth. So mm-hmm. these are fat-soluble toxins, and the fat-soluble toxins can get stored in your fat tissues, and they have to be processed out through the liver. The liver dumps them into the bile. Here's another good example of what happens when the bile doesn't flow. So because, again, the bile is processing fats, 
the liver dumps these very nasty fat-soluble toxins into the bile. The bile squirts out, and then it comes out in the bowel movement. So if the bile's not flowing, again, those fat-soluble toxins reabsorb. And even if the bile was flowing, these toxins are very hard to get rid of because they go deep. They can go into the bone marrow. That's a fatty tissue there. They can go into your fat tissue, your brain, because the brain's made of cholesterol. So all the fat cells can be storing fat, and they can remain there forever unless you know how to pull them out. So, like, for instance, today I was seeing someone who took birth control pills for 10 years, and she has this skin condition, um, which is just driving her crazy. She's so itchy from all these chemicals trying to come through the skin. And so she wants to know how long it'll take her to get rid of these toxins. I told her it might take a few years, even with all the cleansing we're doing, because these are fat-soluble toxins, and they're just going to... We have the herbs and I list them in the book that get rid of those types of toxins. But any tissue, in the book I talk about seven tissues, from the blood plasma, the blood, the muscle, fat, nerve, bone, reproductive fluids, bone marrow. Any one of those tissues can be harboring toxins. So we have specific herbs for any one of the specific tissues. So it's more to it than just doing a cleanse that you might have heard about or doing some sweating or some fasting. It's not quite that easy. You might get rid of some superficial toxins, but not these real deep ones. That's why people who give up smoking 20 years ago, you would think those toxins are out by now. They still get lung cancer. I'm sure we all know someone who gave up smoking 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and got lung cancer because they're fat-soluble toxins, too. They're all sticky, the nicotine, and you know. So, Again, we're not a country that understands cleansing at a deep enough level. We've kind of heard some cleanses kind of go around on the Internet, but it's it's really not deep enough for what needs to be done, and not thorough enough. Yeah, and, and you know, so, so, since we're just talking about uh, detoxing, you know, um, you, know, you do dis- discuss that subject uh you know frequently um it, you, know, you do emphasize it should be done slowly and it, it should be supervised uh you know, you know can you tell us a little bit more cuz you know there does seem to be some fads associated with detoxing too well in the ancient times uh see again there's four types of toxins those two poisons I just talked about, um, mm-hmm. the vicia, one is from the food not digesting right. That's an acidic toxin. And then the chemicals from the outside world. That's, what, that's again, why we have acid rain all over in the developed countries from the air pollution. So chemicals coming in create acids, so you'll have acid rain. And in your body, there'll be lots of heat in the liver from storing these acid toxins. So in the ancient times, they didn't have these acid toxins. We didn't have acid rain. So back then, the type of toxin we had, they called it ama, and I'll talk about it in the book. Ama just means if the food didn't digest well, and it kind of created like a mucus in the body. And it's a very cold thing. That's why when we have mucus and we say we have a cold, that's why we say it's cold, because 
Um is a very cold toxin. It won't cause autoimmune diseases and cancer. It's just a byproduct of eating food that was too heavy, like ice cream like or French fries or peanut butter. See, they can't absorb in the cells. They remain stuck in the channel, and they just clog it. That's why we feel a little heavy when we have lots of cheeses or a peanut butter sandwich or red meats. It's just sitting, clogging. It's not really being used into the cells and absorbing in. So um, so this is kind of a big issue. In the ancient times, the toxin was cold, but in modern times, everyone's pulse is very hot. You have a hot liver. The blood's very hot. So from this garvisha, from the outside world, chemicals from outside and inside the body when the food rots and ferments. So because of this overexposure to chemicals in the modern era, these are being stored in the body. They're very hot. So to pull out hot toxins, we can't do things like fasting, which heat up the blood, or too much sweating, see, or herbs that are burning and heating, like a maple syrup cayenne pepper cleanse. It's called the master cleanse. Those cleanses, oh. even in Ayurveda, they were considered heating because we had ama back then, like cold toxins, and you had to burn the toxins out. So that type of information is still in the literature where we want to burn toxins all the time but in this modern era the toxins have to come out we have to keep them cool so that's what the book talks about how to cleanse in a way that keeps the liver cool the blood cool because heating is going to cause more autoimmune see so so it's not that hard to understand but you'll see the way we give cleanses um, throughout the book and it's usually through eating food and certain herbs and spices that are cooling in nature Okay, and, and if you go to a lot of the grocery stores now, you know, they might have a little organic uh, section, and uh, you know, you'll probably see uh, you know these probiotic uh, drinks and any uh, other. Uh, uh, Websites advertise them as as well. Um, and you do uh, cover you know the pre and probiotics. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, those? I would say almost every new patient I see coming in, with the exception of maybe just one or two every so many years, um, they they're lacking the friendly bacteria in the gut. And that's because most of us have taken medications like antibiotics, birth control pills, steroids, immunizations that wipe out these friendly strains. So in the early years of my practice, I have ways of testing how the strains are doing. They're depleted in everyone. And yet they would come in and tell me they're making yogurt or they buy yogurt from health food stores or they're taking probiotics. So I got very confused. I didn't know why their friendly bacteria was missing and they were eating the yogurt and taking the probiotics. After about eight years of seeing that, I was very fortunate in that I attended a lecture. A doctor came over from Europe and he brought a very expensive microscope. It cost about, at that time, $60,000, probably be about $250,000 now. And um, we were able to look at all the probiotic 
cultures under a microscope, all the companies at that time, and the cultures were dead in every company. There was one company, which I mentioned in the book, where the cultures were alive. And when I contacted the company, they told me that it's very hard to process a probiotic and not kill the cultures during the processing. So when you start with the culture, it's alive. It might have 2 billion, 4 billion, whatever it is, 7 billion live cultures. But as you're processing it, you're killing the culture. So they said unless it says 100% potency guaranteed on the label, then the cultures are probably um, pretty much died off or, or just dead altogether. So um, so since I started using that company, uh, everyone's doing much better on it. Great, actually. And people who had overgrowth of yeast in the gut or some other infection, they overcome that very quickly because the friendly bacteria can kill off any infection. We all have a little bit of a yeast in our gut. It's called Candida albicans. And it lives in harmony with us, but our friendly bacteria keeps it in check. So when the strains of friendly bacteria are killed off from a, a, an immunization or an antibiotic, that little bit of yeast can multiply as much as it wants, and it fills up in the gut and migrates out of the gut. So almost every new patient I see has an overgrowth of yeast, and it makes them feel tired, and maybe they're distended in their gut. They can't digest right. Um, and so huh. uh, when we give the probiotic, the yeast dies off just from giving, regrowing the friendly bacteria. In other words, you don't have to give anything to kill off the yeast. Uh, that would never work. It will just grow right back. But once you regrow the friendly bacteria, they take care of it. So that's one of the things that the friendly bacteria does, in addition to breaking the food down into small enough particles so you can absorb it into your cells. It prevents infection of not only yeast in the gut, but uh, parasites, uh, fungus. Like if you have toenail fungus, that lets you know that your friendly bacteria are missing in the gut. See, so SIBO, all these different types of infections, strep throat, um, HPV you might hear about. These are all coming from lack of friendly bacteria in those specific areas. So, for instance, if you have lack of friendly bacteria in your throat, because the friendly bacteria are from the mouth on down to the rectum, and they're in the bladder and vaginal tract as well. So if you're lacking the friendly bacteria in the throat, you could get strep throat, or maybe in the stomach you could get H. pylori, or in the gut you could get overgrowth of yeast or parasites, or in the bladder you could get bladder infections. And then so when doctors see infections, they keep treating it with more and more antibiotics. And then you get in a vicious cycle where it kills off more friendly bacteria. Then you get more infections. Mm -hmm. Then, so you get in this vicious cycle. So I've helped many, many people through the years to break that cycle so that um, they can manage their own infections. You shouldn't get any infections uh, if you have good friendly bacteria. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating information. And, yeah, that's... I, I, yeah, you know, I always hear, hear, hear that you know, like after a hospital stay and you know, get sent home with you know, some like a, a week of antibiotics and you know, here okay just eat you know, a cup of yogurt a day. Yeah, yeah, it won't help. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's and 
you know, you start making these connections about okay, that's you know, everyone says that. You know, just just get you know, get get one of those like little six packs of yogurt. Well, it, it's just a, a waste of money. It's just people just keep saying the same things, but there's there's nothing to nothing substantial in the food that is going to. Uh, counteract the, uh, you know, all, all the medications you were sent home with. So it, uh, it's a, it, interesting. Now, if you point make your own yogurt, I did talk about the fact that my teacher from India and I, we checked mm-hmm. all the yogurt cultures and you know Whole Foods and health food stores, and the cultures there were dead. Um, so we found that the same company who makes that probiotic that's real active. They make mm-hmm. a yogurt starter. So if you make your own yogurt, the cultures will be very alive. So, so that's beneficial. So in the book, I have a recipe using mm-hmm. that yogurt starter. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, um, you know, we've you know, been talking about um, you know, different ways of preparing foods and get. Uh, some of the recipes that you know, just mentioned and you know, uh, the probiotic uh, um, you know, yogurt. Uh, so, you know, you know, we, we've covered some things to uh, eat, but you know, it, there, there are also uh, oils that that you mentioned uh, that uh, m- might need to be applied to uh, babies and I- infants who who you know can't uh, eat some of these foods at you know, at, at that stage of their lives. And, and you do talk about um, you know, some of the trans. Dermal applications that uh, can be done in some, some cases. Can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Mark, that practice? Mark? Yes, yes. Mark, we have yes. a caller with a question. Oh, okay. Is it okay, okay. to bring her on? It, it's sure. Joellen. Hold on. Hi, Joellen. Hi. Uh, really interesting uh, topic tonight, and I'm actually um, wondering if. Uh, if there, if someone's going to, like I'm going to be going to India this summer, and if there are any clinics wow. that she might recommend, or maybe if I could uh, email later and and ask the question as well. I don't know the doctors in India so well. Um, there, there. See, the problem is that in Ayurveda, those books were written several thousand years ago. So they were describing things that had happened then, and they said that we're going to leave the textbooks open for the future doctors to write new chapters because we can't foresee what's going to happen. So they didn't know about, like, all the antibiotics we use and the air pollution we have now and the fact that we put fluoride in the water and chlorine and it kills the water. So there's a lot of issues that have happened and sprung up now. So in the book, I talk about the fact that when I sat with my teacher, he had to figure out 
a new way to cleanse, a new way to deliver the herbs, uh, because everyone's liver is overheated, so too many oral herbs will heat it up. So he made these transdermal creams. He made these glyceride drops where we put drops in water and you swallow it and it slowly comes into the liver. So this is the adaptation he had to make for Ayurveda for a modern era. So if you go to India, I would say that they're not familiar with this upgrade that we've had to make here in the West because they're not as toxic there. Uh, they don't use as many pharmaceuticals, although they are catching up to us. Now, when I first met my teacher 20 years ago, he, couldn't, he didn't understand what was happening in America. When he started taking my patient's pulses, he was in shock at first because he had never seen this before where our liver is so compromised that from so many bad foods, we eat a lot of processed foods in America, and on top of that, we've taken lots of pharmaceuticals. So because of that, he had to reformulate, again, all of Ayurveda, how we take the herbs, how we do the cleanses. In this modern era where the cleanses are so high, I kind of am mentioning superficially. You'll see what I mean in the book. So if you go to India they're going to still be steeped from those ancient texts, which isn't bad knowledge. It just needs to be upgraded from the modern era. So I would say that until they get on the same level that we're at, with like, like in the cities now, they are having things like McDonald's and processed foods, whereas in the villages where my teacher came from, they didn't have that. So, again, he had never taken pulses of people like us where the liver was so toxic. But now in India, it's starting to happen. So they're going to have to see and do the same upgrades that my teacher had to do as time goes on. But I don't think it's happened there yet. It's not that you'll get into any trouble there, but but I don't know the clinics there or anything, what they're doing. You you might stumble on a good one, and then you might stumble on one that's not. So, so again, uh, again, my teacher made these changes, that, and they were developed in America, but they're not necessarily understanding them in India just yet. Would you suggest well, she you. read your book before she go? Yeah, you could do that. Um, are you going there for treatments, did you say? Well, I'm actually going for um, uh, just a, another visit just for fun, but I thought, well, while I'm there, I might as well um, check out a different clinic or or just get assessed or whatnot. You could do that. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many hundreds of thousands of Ayurvedic practitioners. Just the fact that you'll be there, you know, a week or two, you won't get involved with too much of what they're going to have to say because treating a person Ayurvedically takes months and months. So you won't get too steeped in, you know, what they're going to tell you to do. So it shouldn't be too bad. It's just that they're not used to seeing the American patient um, and they might not be as equipped as my teacher was. And it took him a while. It took him about four years to figure out what to do to the American patient because he had never seen this before either. Um, he would give them the herbs and they would get rashes from them or diarrhea. And he'd have to keep stopping the person's protocol. We would put them on cleanses. They would get worse. And, again, it took him about four years to figure out what to do. And once he figured out what to do, then it was smooth sailing and, and then he was able to make the 500 remedies. But but what my teacher did, it was just a shame he passed away um, early, too early. 
for his work to become so well known and that's part of what I'm trying to do is to keep his legacy going because we need these upgrades for this modern era where the liver's so hot and everyone. Yeah, well, thank uh, you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, jo- jo- Jerome, uh, before you uh, uh, leave us for the uh, you know, call, um, Dr. Teitelbaum, do you want to give out your, your uh, website and that, you know, just take a little uh, minute break and make sure that uh, jo- Joellen could jot that down? Yeah, if she um, needs to contact you, could you or Google anything. my name and my website will pop up. Um, it's Dr. Marianne, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, title bomb, and it's T as in Tom, E-I, and then T again, E-L, B as in boy, A-U-M, as in Mary. So it's title bomb. So my, my name will come up. Also, there's You'll see, it'll say um, there's 10 online classes that I give the patients, but you guys are welcome to to listen to those classes if you like. So it can talk about, you know, how my teacher was training me and all these different issues. You'll see the classes. It'll say online classes. If you click on it, you'll see them. They're all named. For instance, there'll be an hour-long lecture on vitamin D and why you shouldn't take it orally. See, the ancient doctors didn't talk about vitamin D and why you shouldn't take it orally because they didn't have vitamin D back then, see. So same thing when you go to India. They're not familiar with the fact that your vitamin D is low where you live because you're not out in the sun like they are. Uh, or, Or like here we get all these flu shots and the mercury can burn your nerve tissue and give neuropathy. They're not going to be familiar with that because they don't get flu shots in India. So... So in these classes, I'll talk about all these issues. There'll be an hour-long lecture on vaccinations. There'll be an hour-long lecture on magnesium. These are all important issues, but something that wasn't necessarily discussed in those ancient textbooks because these are new things that come up. So when you go to a doctor and they tell you your vitamin D is low, which everyone's low, then you'll know why you shouldn't take it orally. So those types of issues are talked about in all my classes that you're – you're welcome to listen to those as well. Thank you so okay. much. You're welcome. All right. Uh, uh, Joellen, do you have any other uh, questions for our guest? No, thank you. I appreciate your time. Oh, oh you're uh, uh, yeah, we appreciate you calling in. It's, it's so, so nice to have. Uh, Someone inspired enough to call in. Uh, I'm glad to see that the show is generating more calls like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, um, Doctor Teitelbaum. Uh, I think that, uh, before the uh, phone call, I uh, I was just starting to ask you about. Uh, uh, um, dealing with um, you know, babies and in- infants that um, you know, who, who might not be able to uh, ingest you know, these herbs for that at, at that stage of their lives, so you know the parents might. Uh, 
need to put some of the uh, these like uh, transdermal uh, patches or rubbing oil on their spine. Uh, um, how, how does that work? Is well, it, you know, we're just like looking at absorption through the skin. Yeah, the skin absorbs. Even okay. modern medicine can give some medications tr- through the skin. We call it transdermally, like nicotine patches or estrogen patches. Okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So okay. we can do the same thing with herbs. My teacher, um, he wanted to use about 500 herbs, but only about 80 herbs could go through the skin. So we do give a, about 80 herbs through the skin, but not every herb can go through the skin. So in that case, he developed what are called glyceride drops, where he was able to capture the vibration of the herb and put it in um, a glyceride that he made out of organic yellow squash. And then we put drops of that into water and the person sips on it so it slowly comes into the liver so for two reasons one is if the liver is overheated it would react to the crude herb and also for babies you could just put a drop in water and it's just it's like a homeopathic version of the herb so see every Hmm. herb has the crude herb that's the actual plant but within that plant is the intelligence to perform its activities and its functions. The Chinese call that activity qi, and the people in India call it prana. So it's this intelligence that's inherent in every herb. In my book, I have a whole section on what prana means. So my Uh teacher was able to figure out how to get rid of the crude herb and just leave the intelligence of the herb behind. Again, it's almost like, um, like a vibrational way of giving the herbs he had to do it in this modern era where people need a lot of herbs to bail them out, but the herbs tend to heat the liver, and the liver's already overheated. So this was one of his um, changes, his upgrades for Ayurveda that he had to make. So, um, so we have, you know, a couple hundred of those that we give for, you know, different things. So we can give babies. We could just rub the herb on the skin, and it absorbs in. Or they could take a little drop of the glyceride drop in some water and sip on that. Because so. you can't make okay. teas for babies and expect them to swallow tablets, you know. Right. I, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I was just glad that you, uh, you have uh, alternatives for you know, uh, babies uh, and what and and we need to include uh the the elderly it, it, how does ayurveda um work with uh elderly uh patients you know as well just you know kind of look at both ends of the uh lifespan yeah, the same way. You know, we could give them transdermal cream, some glyceride drops, so they don't have to swallow so many tablets. Especially in the elderly, they're on so many prescription drugs, their liver is really overheated. So we have to give the herbs in these other two ways so we don't heat it with more herbs. Okay. And, and, and speaking of yeah, the these herbs, and you do mention um, 
Boswellia, which mm-hmm. is another name for frankincense. Um, and that might be kind of hard to get at your local store. But are some of the other herbs uh, you know, uh, available from you know, you know the seed catalogs where you can grow them in you know, like a, a windowsill or in, in your garden and you know, store them uh, over the winter? Um, is that uh, possible I, to do that? Uh, I don't know many patients who do that, but I'm sure you could do some of them. It depends yeah. on how hot it needs to be to grow that particular herb. Mm-hmm. For instance, I tried to grow Tulsi once. It grew really well in the summer. It's a species of basil. And then in the winter months, I brought it into a real um, sunny kitchen with skylights and lots of windows, and it still died. So it really depends on the herb that you you want to grow. But I would say most of our patients don't get involved with growing them all because so many people I see are so sick, I have to put them on lots of different um, herbs and glyceride drops and transdermal creams and teas that it would be kind of overwhelming for them to try to figure out how to grow these things. But you could also probably purchase a lot of them. You know, you could get anything off Amazon nowadays. Um <laughs> So you could at least purchase, and in my book I have resources for where you could get them. There's different herbal companies now. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I just want uh, I just you know bring up that topic and mm-hmm. as well, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, a lot of people might like try and you know, grow some things at at the house, but. Mm-hmm. It, um, um, if they live in warm climates like Florida, they could probably do a lot of them, but not if they live in, say, Connecticut or Alaska or Maine, probably not or, too many of them. Right. I, I, I understand. It, 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 have you ever been to uh, India? No, I was fortunate in that my teacher came out and trained me right in my office. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's just I I I've never been there. Um, I don't, um, you know, maybe some someday I'll actually make it. But it, it it would, I think it'd be interesting to go there to see, you know, what what their gardening techniques are are like. Um, you know, how how they contrast with uh, America and you know the different. Uh, um, zones, America, you know, the USDA uh, growing zones. It's yeah. just a, a really, it's just a fascinating subject. I, I, I've really had a great time talking about this subject tonight. Just lots of neat questions, and I'm just so glad someone like Joe Ellen. What was inspired enough to call in? Yeah, hey uh, Mark, I got it, a question. Oh, oh, oh sure, sure. <laughs> um, I the way that that uh, the government is is 
modifying our food before it comes to the table or to the grocery store. It's really hard to to get food that hasn't been fiddled with in some way, shape, or form. How do you how do you work around that with diet and stuff? Because you know, I understand that you know you you any food that's processed is useless, but even the stuff that comes even organically to the stores these days has been treated with so much stuff. How do you avoid that and and eat cleanly? You you do the best you can. Luckily, we have enough food co-ops and Whole Foods and places that sell organic. Again, we could start splitting hairs to see exactly how organic they are. But at least it's better, um, these organic farmers, than the conventional. So, again, you just do the best you can. In my book, I give different sources, for instance, of milk. Uh, Milk is one of them. You have to be real careful when you buy it because the cows are fed things they shouldn't be fed and they should Mm -hmm. be fed grass and all that. So I'll kind of go through that in the book. But um, I think that you're as much as you can get organic and non-GMO, and you should be okay. Because nowadays there's far more available to you than when I got started with all this in the 1970s. It was just very limited. But now I have so many more options. I would say, if anything, it's a lot easier nowadays. Well, switching to to going totally with the Ayurvedic, um, <clears throat> it does make it difficult, especially if you are suffering from allergies of any sort that, that are food-related, um, especially, you know, lactose intolerance and, and um, having to be gluten-free and stuff like that. Um, are, are those are those illnesses or allergies something that, that is – can be treated Ayurvedically yeah. to lessen Oh, yeah, they're easy, to treat. they're easy to treat. That's what I was saying. We fix the reason why the person's allergic to them so they can go back to having them. Almost every new patient I see is allergic to something nowadays from the devastation to the digestive system, the gut, the liver. But once we fix those areas, the food allergies go right away. See, we're not used to thinking that we can fix something. We're used to putting ourselves in the corner, oh, I can't eat this, I can't eat gluten, I can't eat that, I can't eat dairy, uh, you know, and, and we're used to suppressing symptoms. That's why we're not getting better. So people mm-hmm. are usually shocked to hear that you can actually fix things. You can fix these allergies. You can fix the reason why the blood sugar is going up. You don't have to take medicine to lower it. You can fix the thyroid. You don't have to take the synthroid. This is a whole novel concept in our country because the doctors don't get it either. But it, it can be done. I see it every day in my practice. Okay. And, you know, you know we've spoken about um, you know, detoxing the liver. And one of the subjects that seems like it would be a uh, – Overlooked by you know, a, a lot of people w- would be uh, detoxing the, the bone marrow, uh, and you, know, you, you do cover that subject as well. Um, it, can, can you explain the, the importance of why we would need to do do the detox of bone marrow? This is an extremely important thing, and in fact, 
I'm fairly certain this might be the only book that I have read that discusses the bone marrow. Um, yes. So what autoimmune means is that your immune system, which has the intelligence to know to attack viruses, bacteria, pathogens, has now lost its intelligence. It's off the rails, and it's attacking you. That's called autoimmune. If it's attacking food, like we could call it a food sensitivity, like gluten or dairy, uh, see, or if it's attacking pollen, we could say we have allergies. But the idea is that the immune system's off its tracks. So then in my book I talk about, well, let's fix it, see. See, again, we don't think we can fix these things. We just think we have to take these biologics to shut off the immune system. But you can fix it. So first you have to know, well, what is the immune system? So a lot of books... Before I wrote my book on the thyroid gland, I read all the books that are out there from alternative practitioners because I knew that they were limited in their resources to treat the thyroid, and I wanted to see how they were able to write a whole book on it because here I have all these herbs and things my teacher taught me, and they were discussing the friendly bacteria. At least they got that far. It's called the gut microbiome, so everybody's talking about it. There's a lot of research it became very popular in the last five, ten years, whereas 30 years ago when we were talking about it, people really hadn't heard of it so much. So so that part, I have to say, people have got on that bandwagon. They understand it's something we need to address. But then that's where they, they kind of let everything else go. So this book, we're talking also about the liver and the fact that when the liver overheats, it could push you into autoimmune. And then the third part is the bone marrow, and I haven't seen anyone discuss that. And yet it's the bone marrow where the immune system cells are born, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets. But nobody seems to talk about it. And the reason we can talk about it is because the bone marrow is one of those seven tissues we could feel in the pulse. So we could feel many, many pharmaceuticals wind up in the bone marrow for instance, if you get an immunization like a flu shot, within minutes, those toxins that were in that shot are now sitting in your bone marrow because they're very hot and piercing. Many pharmaceuticals go into the bone marrow. So we're seeing this devastation to the bone marrow, but no one else is. Unless you knew how to take a pulse, you wouldn't know this is occurring. So in the book, I talk about how to clean the bone marrow. It's very interesting. Um, so that's one thing I'm very happy with the book, that I was able to finally get the word out that there is this issue with autoimmune. So for something like Hashimoto's, that's a whole different ball game than just having hypothyroid, where the thyroid's underactive, or hyperthyroid, where it's a little overactive. But Hashimoto's is where it's not that the thyroid is the problem. The thyroid is the victim of the immune system attacking it. So we have to fix the immune system so it stops its relentless attacks on the thyroid. And the same thing, doctors nowadays, they just give Synthroid or maybe a natural thyroid medication, and they're totally overlooking the fact that the immune system has lost its way and it's attacking the thyroid, um, and then the thyroid hormones go low. All they're doing is just giving the hormone to make it look good on the blood work. So now the, the level comes up and you think everything's good. But meanwhile, the immune system's still in there attacking. And if it decides to attack somewhere else, you can get another autoimmune disease. That's why so many people have more than one autoimmune disease because it goes from one place 
and here it attacks the thyroid, causing Hashimoto's or Graves' disease. Then over here, it attacks the colon, causing Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Or maybe over here, it attacks another area. See, so it depends on where it decides to attack as to the name of the disease. But again, it's just the name. So we need to learn about the bone marrow. So once you learn about it, you'll understand why there's such a huge epidemic of Hashimoto's, which was not so common 100 years ago before the onslaught of all these pharmaceuticals we take, which are devastating to our immune systems. But now it's at epidemic levels. It's the most common autoimmune disease in America right now. So, so I'm really proud of the book that it addresses that for the first time in any thyroid book that was written. Yeah, um, yeah, it's not like I read a lot of medical information. I, 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 I was really interested in you know, trying to uh, develop some new information to bring to uh, our audience. You, know, you had a, a really terrific interview with uh, Zoe a couple months ago, and you know, I was like, well, I, you know, this really is uh, some information that needs to be presented to more people. And I, I, I thought that, you know, with you know, my limited understanding of you know reading you know, medical stuff it you know I could understand it it, it appealed to me it makes sense it, it, it's you know, you know you really do have a very informative uh, book for you know someone you know just like me who um, w- would like to know more about Ayurveda and you know, thyroid and you know, t- topics like that, and, and you know, just a new approach because I, I see a lot of what you're talking about. Just maintain symptoms, but we aren't going to you know really try to make you better uh, or cure you know provide a cure. I mean that that means that if you're cured, the money stops. I don't, I've never been that cynical about modern medicine because I know being a doctor, doctors want nothing else but to help their patients get well. It's just that they've been taught incorrectly. They've been taught okay. how to suppress symptoms using chemicals, and you can't heal the body using chemicals. It's just all that they've been taught. I think we're on the brink of a major overhaul in modern medicine. People are fed up. Every new patient I see, and again, we have hordes of people coming in my office, they are so fed up with modern medicine, and they feel like they're not getting to the root of the problem. And not Mm -hmm. only that, the side effects are too severe. They can't even take the medicine half the time. Or like we have people, they get a shingle shot, and they have severe shingles now. Or they get a flu shot, and they're sick in the hospital with the flu. So we're seeing um, the very beginnings of a shift where people are trending away from modern medicine, more than half the population now are seeking out alternative care. But the the point I made in my book is that we're in a country that has no authentic system yet of alternative care. So 
that's why we have to bring Ayurveda into the country where it's been time-tested. What we're doing uh, with these crazy diets that are coming and going, it's, it's not really based in any science yet. Whereas Ayurveda, if you look in my book in the back, you'll see hundreds of research articles where every mm-hmm. herb I talk about has been thoroughly researched. Every topic I discuss, like why fish oil is bad for you to take, that's been researched. Mm-hmm. So every claim I make in the book, I have so many dozens of research articles. In fact, that was the hardest part of the book, was typing all the research in, because there was so much that I had to offer. So we need to incorporate and really study what they're doing in Ayurveda in order to decide that we want to seek out alternative care. Otherwise, we're kind of stuck here. We can't just take all these vitamins. It's just not the way to go. It, it, it's you know what you've done is much needed, and I, 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 I it, it's a fresh perspective, and I, I I really appreciate it, and I hope that uh, you know, people would go to Inner Traditions or Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, and get a copy. Hey, uh, uh, we are down to about three minutes. And I want to give you uh, time to promote uh, what you have a couple upcoming appearances where they can see you actually talk about your material and, you know, you you can plug your website as well. If you go on my website, it'll tell you some of the appearances I'll be making. I'll be, um, I just finished a West Coast tour where I went to California Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, and I presented in um, Vancouver, Canada. Um, everywhere we went, we, we had hordes of people showing up and standing room only. Now I'll be doing a, a talk next Saturday night in Manhattan. At, it's called Divya's Kitchen. It's a an, um, an Ayurvedic restaurant that was voted one of the top 100 vegetarian restaurants in the city. So if you go on my website, it will give you the address, the time. And then after that, I'll be doing a Midwest tour where I'll be in Fairfield, Iowa, where there's a very large Ayurvedic community and a college there, as well as Chicago and Milwaukee. So so I can be there. And then I'll be doing some more East Coast tours as well. But, again, everything will be on uh, on my website. Okay, and uh, uh, you know what's your website again? Just go to Dr. Marianne Teitelbaum, and it'll come right up. Okay, that's great. And and, you know we're approaching about a a minute left. Um, I I wanted to thank you so so much for um, being our guest. Uh, good luck with your tour and other books. Uh, you know, you're more than welcome to return and d- discuss them uh, once they uh, uh, become published. I just, I just want to thank you so much for uh, bringing so much diversity to Nightlight. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. Hey, um, yeah, we want to thank Joe Ellen for calling in. Time to say good night, Mark. <laughs> So uh, th- thanks, Barbara, for producing. We'll see everyone Monday, and 
Th thank you so much. Good night.